Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, a horrific report from the Canadian Armed Forces on what was happening in those five long-term care homes that they went into to help. It's not pretty. Will Prime Minister Justin Trudeau allow Huawei's 5G network into Canada? And will COVID-19 change the way we buy housing? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Listening to uh, a very disturbing uh, media conference from Premier Doug Ford uh, in regard to a report that uh, has come out from the Canadian Armed Forces uh, in regard to uh, them going into five of uh, of uh, long-term care centers in Ontario and just reporting back horrendous conditions, uh, gut-wrenching, all kinds of, of words used to describe how bad it was in these uh, five particular homes. Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in uh, Jane Metis. She is with us now uh, and uh, uh, an advocate for those that are in homes such as this, and she is with us now. Jane, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. So your thoughts on this report and the press conference by the Premier uh, that we have just heard? Uh, Well, I mean, the report, sadly, uh, contains things that we hear all the time from long-term care homes. Um, And, you know, I'm really not clear what the government did prior to uh, the COVID crisis to correct these issues. The Minister of Health talks about having these multi-level inspections but i don't i you know i don't think that those were ever sufficient and getting away from doing uh full inspections is the sort of thing that exactly what is in this report is not going to get uh found i think that what's going on in long term many long term care homes um have similar problems um these may have more than others it's hard to know um because we're not always there but you know these these kind of allegations uh there's nothing in those reports that sort of jumped out of me as saying, oh, I've never seen this before. Uh, Jay Medes is with us, Barrister and Solicitor, Institutional Advocate, Advocacy Center for the Elderly. Uh, so are you saying that this all lies on the Ford government? Oh, absolutely not. I think this, I think uh, Premier Ford is absolutely correct. This goes back decades. Um, you know, unfortunately, when we did the Galice inquiry, we were not able to get into all of the things that are in these reports. We sort of saw a small shot, snapshot of part of it. Um, these are issues that we've been bringing up to the government for a very long time. Uh, but what I'm saying is, is that he says that this, you know, that long-term care was such a prime importance, and I'm not sure what uh, happened, you know, between the time the government took over. There was a few announcements about money, um, but what they actually did to do anything to correct anything um, until uh, COVID came around. Even even the stuff that was coming out of the Galice inquiry, uh, you know, the things that they were doing. Um, you know, weren't necessarily sufficient to uh, deal with the issues such as, uh, you know, the staffing uh, that they were talking about, the staffing uh, group that they put together, committee. Um, I don't think that that was sufficient to deal with the issues. So I'm very curious to know what the government actually has been doing to fix the system prior to COVID. And of course, now we know going ahead, we're going to have to absolutely change everything. Uh, prior to COVID-19, obviously, uh, issues were known. We've known this for a, an awfully long time. Um, that being said, as the minister said, it took COVID-19 to push a lot of these places over the edge uh, to the brink. 
Uh, is that a fair assessment that, uh, for, on their part, that, uh, you know, at least these homes were functioning and were somehow getting by, and then with this global pandemic, boom, that's, that's when it really hit the fan? Uh, yeah, I, I don't believe that. I think that uh, these homes were not uh, coping prior to. Um, mm-hmm. I suspect that, that these homes were having many problems beforehand and uh, needed to be looked at and to have a lot greater uh, scrutiny and there needed to be a lot more changes in long-term care. I don't think those things were happening um, before. Um, I think it's just that the death toll increased because of COVID. Is it going to, or would it have taken, or has it taken, something as big as COVID-19 to to prove to everybody that there's wholesale changes that need to be made here? I think that's exactly right. I think that many of us working in the sector who have been advocates for people have been saying for many years, uh, and we've you know gotten sort of lip service from different governments, oh, we're going to correct the system, but nothing really changes that much overall. Uh, the system needs to be totally revamped, um, and it's taken COVID to really shine the light on it, and that's a very sad um, reflection of our society. Uh, opposition talking about uh, making these homes public, uh, press releases flying out before the, the media conference was even over. Is, is making these all these institutions public, is that the answer? Well, I guess it depends on what you're talking about, or is it talk, you know, are they talking about the government taking them over? I think that's unrealistic. Um, so who in the, pri- in the public sector is going to do that? Um, you know, and how do you, you know, deal with the issues that we have a large majority of, you know, the number of homes are in the private sector, so how do you take them over? But we definitely need to change the system. I'm just not sure how practically that will work. Um, but there are definitely things that have to be changed. And if companies are taking out huge profits from homes, I mean, that can only cause problems uh, in the system. And, and I think we really have to look at our system very carefully. Um, but not all of these homes are, are private, I don't believe. Uh, I believe that there's, there's at least one that is uh, not for profit. Um, ultimately, uh, we certainly know what the issues here are in regard to funding the healthcare system. Um, is this about taking over our, our care of seniors and, and, and folding that all into the public health care system as well? Is that the only answer? We provide the licenses for these uh, private operations. Why can't we demand a certain set of standards? I mean, why does, it, why does government have to take it over? And we've seen in often cases that doesn't necessarily help. So, you know, again, we're the ones handing out the licenses. Can't we do this to private vendors and still have complete control or a certain, certainly a large uh, control over the guidelines and the regulations involved? Well, it is. And I think that that's one of the problems is that, you know, theoretically, we are supposed to have a large amount of control over the system. We do control the licenses. Um, but the system of inspections, we know that there have not been full inspections in these homes. Um, they were they were uh, certainly stopped um, during this government, um, so that's a problem. Uh, we need to go back to the full inspections because that's the only way you can see what's going on. But frankly, even when homes were found to be uh, have numerous um, complaints and and problems, and I'm talking, I've seen I've seen uh, reports from the um, uh, compliance uh, on full reports that were like 200 pages long with, you know, so many um, problems, and yet 
there's really little that the, the ministry does. They may make orders, but there's no fining system. They have never passed that. Um, there's really nothing to force the homes to actually comply other than taking away licenses. And the governments don't want to do that because then who's going to take care of the people? So um, it's, you know, they have the, the tool to look at homes, but to actually enforce that, I think, has been very weak. Uh, there's been lots of chatter about inspections, especially with this government. But again, as you're saying with inspectors, what difference does it make how many inspectors you have to tell you how bad it is if nothing's getting fixed? What we need here is wholesale, a wholesale system change and something, and, and certainly something that's a lot more transparent. With COVID-19 and what we're seeing, uh, is that not possible to do? Well, I think that's exactly what's going to have to happen. I think there is going to have to be a wholesale change. Um, and there's a lot of materials out there, um, a lot of information out uh, where people have looked at systems and how to change them. Um, but a lot of what we're looking at really is, if you think about it, is a lot of culture issues. You know, there's a lot in those reports about staff uh, being, you know, aggressive or curt with people. Um, arguing between each other. I think there really has to be a culture change within the homes. There has to be a culture change on how we perceive our seniors because um, that is really goes to the crux of the whole matter is that we have not really uh, put um, seniors into a prime space when it comes to their health care and their care in the, in the community. You know, everybody's looking for something to someone to blame, but at the end of the day, this is a societal issue. This is just not a fashionable issue. It's not a fashionable political issue. Healthcare isn't. Old folks aren't. And this has been neglected by society, has it not? I mean, is that not the plain truth here? It is absolutely the plain truth. I think that uh, we absolutely have not um, put them into, uh, you know, a position where they're of prime importance and there's somebody we just sort of away and then we don't have to uh, worry about them so i absolutely think that we have to make a change in society um, in our medical system um, so that we're not perceiving seniors as you know well we can't cure them so you know we don't really need to to provide them with a lot of care we have to do much better and uh, hopefully this will uh this um will uh, do that do if you do something like this, does it have to be part and pulse, a parcel of a complete healthcare a study? I, are, even though the two are separate at this point, uh, they are related. If one is is being studied to that extent, what about the healthcare system? Well, it is. It is part and parcel of the healthcare system because you know uh, you know anything that can't be fixed, they just shuffle off into long term care, and so we really have to look at how okay. how the system. Um, manages this kind of, of care and the seniors' care. You know, who are we sending to care and, and what are we doing to prevent people from having to go into care? And I think that's often the other problem is that it's a very reactive system. So we only react in situations like this instead of saying, okay, how can we prevent these people from going in in the first place? Uh, and that's a real systemic problem. Jane Medes has been with us, Barrister and Solicitor, Institutional Advocate, Advocacy Center for the Elderly. Jane, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, not saying whether his government will join other allies in banning or at least restricting Huawei's uh, 
use and, and backbone of 5G, well, we uh, supply our 5G network and them being behind that. Uh, other members of the uh, Five Eyes network have said, no, we're out. And uh, now with uh, a, a situation involving the Huawei CFO, which you know has been held uh, in uh, on an extradition warrant uh, in Vancouver for quite a while now. Her hearing is tomorrow, and we will see where that goes forward and how it moves forward. Uh, obviously, at this point, uh, the Prime Minister has not made a call on this. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, good afternoon, Scott. So your thoughts on uh, what is going to go down tomorrow and, and how this could affect uh, what we're involved in today? Um, you're referring to the court decision. Yes, in regard to the Huawei uh, CFO it, tomorrow. It's, it's so difficult. I mean, it really is difficult to say. I mean, the courts are very, I mean, it, they really are truly independent in our country. I say that because there are countries where they're not, you know, in China, where I've taught for many, many years, in Russia, where I've also taught, uh, the courts are... Uh, do not deviate from what government wants them to approve. And uh, I'm not trying to say they're a sham, but they're certainly under the influence, I don't want to say control, but certainly under the strong influence of government. And they only appoint people that will, uh, you know, toe the party line. So it's, it's, um, it's really difficult uh, to say uh, what the, but the uh, court is going to rule. But I, I, I think, I mean, that's beyond the, out of the control, out of the hands of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. But, you know, you and I talked about this, I can't remember, about a year ago. I've long maintained that the solution is not going to be a legal jurid- juridical solution. And I'm not trying to suggest they don't have the role to play. But at the end of the day, the solution is going to have to be political between the two countries. And um, and uh, whereby they strike, uh, it can be just an agreement. Look, we're not, we're going to agree to disagree. And but we're going to we have we want those two people back and uh, our two Canadians and you want her back and maybe it'll be almost like a prisoner swap in the Cold War that occurred. I remember studying this in history. I'm talking between the uh, Americans and the Soviet Union at the time, and they did periodic Cold War swaps, just as there's Cold War swaps in the Middle East. So it doesn't mean you're agreeing with the other side. It doesn't mean you're giving in or capitulating. It just means that they've got one of your people. <laughs> Or, or two of your people, <laughs> you've got one or two of their people. And so you decide to sort of do a wash, a swap and a wash. Um, we, over the weekend, uh, the, the CFO and some families, or so rather some family and some coworkers were, uh, were taking pictures on the steps of the B.C. Supreme Court, given the victory sign and the thumbs up. Uh, and such, and uh, there was various press there that I guess that picked up on this. It was very, very quick. It was a very uh, quickly staged photo. Uh, she was in. She was gone. Um, your thoughts on this and and reasoning for it? The the Chinese, uh, and I, I want to make it, whenever I try and interpret them, so I get emails from people saying you're a defender of them, and I have been teaching that for 25 years, but uh, I am not a defender of their regime. Um, I just want to make that clear. Um, and they don't pay me when I go to China. My university pays me because it's our degree, where it's our degree we're offering there. Um, but um, uh, there's no question that Chinese has a very different system, and um, very, very different. I mean, profoundly different. It's not just the obvious one that, you know, theirs is authoritarian and ours isn't. But when you get into the values, that's a word we like to use in our country. You know, we talk about Canadian values. And the value system of China 
and the Chinese culture is very different from the value system of the uh, uh, Canadian or Western countries. We believe in the sanctity of the individual. That's why we have elections. That's why every person is equal under the Charter of Rights. We don't sublimate the individual for the greater, quote, greater good of the, of the national culture. In China, the collective is always, it's always, it's, it, it, it's valued over the individual. And uh, so they, they don't have the reverence and uh, the Chinese government very clearly and previous, it isn't just a Xi thing, it's a past government, Chinese governments do not have the respect for the rule of law or for the independence of courts that we have had going back to probably the Magna Carta. Uh, I'm not even suggesting, uh, I, uh, to be fair, I'm not suggesting that other countries do. There's not too many countries. It's really, you know, the, the OECD countries that have that, which are only a small, it's only 30 countries out of 200 of the United Nations that have that true, deep, deep, deep-rooted belief in the sanctity of uh, rule of law, the sanctity of the individual, uh, the human rights as an individual thing. And and so China, it just, it's not that they're, people say they're being belligerent. I mean, they are. <laughs> but they're not being belligerent to be belligerent. They just don't believe in the things we believe. Mm-hmm. And and there's lots of naive people that say, oh, well, you know, they're going to come around, you know, and just have them exposed to our way of life, and they're just going to flip uh, and and become true believers. And, and I don't think they are. Um, I think that it's a fundamentally different culture. I don't believe they're going to change. I don't believe we're going to change either. I think we are witnessing the emergence, Scott, of a, a new bipolar Cold War. It's going to be different from between the Soviet Union and, and, and USA, but it's going to be between the USA on one side and its um, allies, Canada, the, oh, the Western countries. And then there's going to be China on the other side, and it's going to have its own orbit of countries that are supportive, which I think is what the the Silk Road, the new Silk Road is all about. It's about binding countries in the developing world to support China. And so we're seeing a a new world order emerging, which is bipolar, and two very different worlds. Um, uh, There's an authoritarian, overwhelmingly, not human rights-based, and ours will continue. And whether or not, and I think we will, see a pullback of the supply chains, so that we're going to, you're going to see two parallel economies. You'll see the China and its satellite, call it their satellites. Uh, you know, they've been putting deep roots into Africa and into Middle East and, uh, and of course, throughout Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia. And uh, so my point being that there's going to be, I think, two different world economies, just as there was in the Soviet Union. Russia, well, they didn't call it Russia, Soviet Union had its own economy, and it had its own Western, uh, Eastern bloc of countries, you know, and the Polish uh, people and companies did one, they specialized in one part that was needed, one set of things that were needed, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, other com- Romania specialized in another part, and they all fit together in a trade agreement. And uh, so I think we're going to see the something along that line because of the distrust of China has increased so dramatically, not just in Canada, in the States. You should see the bipartisan bills being introduced in the bill in the U.S., supported by Dems, Democrats, and Republicans, delisting Chinese publicly traded companies on the New York Stock Exchange, for example. And Europe is becoming more and more nervous and antsy. So uh, there's, there's the will to partner and have deeper partnerships and relationships with China is diminishing dramatically. And if Mr. Trudeau comes down against in support of Huawei, then I, I really do think he's on the wrong side of um, where history is going in the Western countries. It's not just the U.S., but I think the Western countries.
Are the developing countries enough to make up what China will or could lose in the rest of the world? Um, I mean, the, the developing world has resources, and China has made it very clear in everything I've ever read on this by trade economists, including former uh, Chinese uh, nationals, is uh, China desperately needs resources because they're so huge, and we know that. They're 1.3 billion people, and they need minerals, they need oil, they need gas, they need everything. And Africa is rich in materials. And resources, and 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 that's not the only place. I'm just mentioning Africa because they've been putting down and putting so many investments in there, and uh, so I, they they want to continue to deal with us because, of course, that's been a huge part of their growth, their enormous growth from 1990 to 1993 when Deng Xiaoping said we're going to open up to the West, and today. They've become the second largest economy in the world. Uh, but I, I think those supply chains are, I'm not going to say they're going to go down to zero, of course not, uh, but they're going to be uh, reduced very dramatically. And so I think that China is going to look to, you know, allies elsewhere, which is fair enough. They're going to look in the developing world, in the poorer, less developed, less affluent, and typically um, far less democratic uh, uh, emerging world. And uh, I'm not saying that all emerging countries are going to align with China. Some will align with the states they have and will continue. Saudi Arabia will continue to align with the United States. Uh, but Iran is clearly aligned with, uh, with uh, Russia and China. And I think we're going to see that trend continue. And, and we're, we may think, and I'm sure Mr. Trudeau thinks, look, I want to chart an independent Canadian foreign policy. These geopolitical factors, the trends that are emerging, are so large, they're way beyond our power. I'm not trying to say we're helpless pawns. We're not. We have degrees of freedom. But, I mean, and sure, we can, if we so choose, and if we're so foolish, say yes to Huawei. I say foolish because you can bet the Americans will retaliate, and they'll retaliate where it hurts. You know, they'll probably ban some of our exports of technology products to the United States. Maybe they'll um, disqualify us from defense-sharing production agreements. So there's ways that they can punish us that will be very painful because we're still we're vastly more co- closely integrated with the American economy than with the Chinese. Yes, we're exporting you know fish and plant uh, vegetable or not vegetables excuse me wheat grains and that sort of thing, but we're not not even remotely close to being in, as integrated with China as we are with the with the U.S. And so our we're in bed with the U.S. We have been for over 100 years, and I do not believe that's going to change in my lifetime, nor my children's or my grandchildren's lifetime. Will uh, Canada's position on China and Huawei and all of this uh, change after Wednesday? Because even today in the press conference, uh, uh, the Prime Minister didn't say anything about Hong Kong, yet talked about developing countries. I think, Scott, uh, and I say this very respectfully, I really do, I think uh, that Mr. Trudeau is sincere. And and he does believe, as as some do in the what are often called the Laurentian elites, decision makers in Toronto, Montreal, and Ottawa. That's the Laurentian elites. And there is a significant body there that believe that we have to. And they've been saying it since Pierre Trudeau forty years ago. The third way we got to diversify away from the United States and be less dependent on the United States. And that's still an article of faith amongst many in the Laurentian elites. And I think he's fully bought in. And I think he really believes that. I, I actually think what we're seeing is a hinge of history. And, and the, the takeover of Hong Kong, which I believe is going to go through, 
and uh, they're going to integrate it to become another province of uh, uh, PRC, People's Republic of China. It will not be the Hong Kong of the last 150 years. That's not a trivial statement. I mean, people don't realize, a lot of Canadians and Americans don't realize, two-thirds of all the foreign capital that built China in the last 30 years into what China is today was not American capital. It was not Western capital. It came from Hong Kong and secondarily from Taiwan. Nonetheless, the, the, lead, the leaders of, of China, and I'm talking the Communist Party, have decided in my judgment, and I think others, that the, the future of the Communist Party is more important than the future of China. And so as a consequence, they're willing to kill the, the goose that's laid gazillions of golden eggs, so many golden eggs it built China up from this incredibly poor third world country into the second largest economy in the world, they're willing to kill that. And that is, and you and I have talked about this before, I am in the very opposite camp, those who say it's only a question of time when China's going to surpass the United States, I think China's on a descent. They have so many structural problems that you cannot wish away. They have one of the most rapidly aging populations in the world because of their one China, one child policy of the last mm -hmm. uh, 30, 40 years. You know, one third of all their corporations are state owned and they're massively over indebted. China has one of the most heavily indebted percentages to GDP in the world over 300 percent that's personal and government and corporate and and you look at all of the structural problems facing them and, and then you see how the u.s and the west are going to be cutting back on those supply chains which also helped create the china of today and then they've cut off and they're about to kill the golden goose that laid gazillions of golden eggs and all i see are nothing but problems ahead for china and i mean serious problems. Right now, they've got an unemployment rate, according to insiders who really track this, they said the true unemployment rate as we speak is somewhere approaching 20% in uh, China, and a lot of those mm. jobs are not going to come back, and that's going to violate the social contract that the PRC, the, Ch the Communist Party, had with the people of China, which is, we will give you growth and jobs, and you just leave us alone and, and don't you know, challenge our, our legitimacy as the rulers of China. That deal is about to be blown up. And, and so for those who see uh, uh, China as our future, Canada's future, are not only naive, but I think that they're completely fundamentally historically wrong. And so he's betting the farm or trying or wanting to bet the farm on a, I don't want to say it's a dead horse, but it's a horse that's old and weak and infirm. And I, if I had to bet, and I don't bet money, but if I was, I would bet on the United States, not on China. As the economist says, U.S. has 90 of the world's 100 best universities in the world, and in a world in a digital economy where innovation and knowledge is king, that's part of your future and your competitive advantage. China doesn't have that. They've also got capital flight. The richest people in the world in China are trying to get the hell out of China with their money. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bad sign about the future of your own country when your own people don't. Your rich people, the insiders who know what's really going on, are trying to get out. So, Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School okay. of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Okay, thanks very much. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we've talked uh, at, at length on this show about what life will be like post-COVID-19 once we get out the other end. Uh, we all know what it's like living in southern Ontario. We've seen Hamilton as it has turned the corner and uh, it's downtown resurrected and and uh, tides starting to turn. But what happens with COVID-19? Where does the interest lie? Uh, as we go down the QEW into Toronto, uh, there's no shortage of uh, skyscraping condos that uh, have people 40 floors in the air and 600 square feet. And the big issue is when it's time for them to get out, where do they go? Uh, we saw issues over the weekend. Uh, what happens when people uh, crowd into public parks and such? Is this going to change the way we develop urban uh, our urban centers? Is this going to change the way we think of suburban sprawl? Can that be better handled? Uh, to talk more about all of this and if the tide is changing, let's bring in Conrad Zarini, Remax agent. He is with us now. Conrad, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. How can you do bad on a beautiful day like today, Scott? It is. It's amazing. It's nice. That's for sure. It certainly. It certainly. It certainly lets us see the light at the end of the tunnel. That's. Uh, that's for certain. So let me ask you, Conrad: Is space the new luxury? Oh, absolutely. I, I think, uh, and just in listening to your your introduction, I think that uh, planners need to now look at recalibrating what they've been doing, and that that efficient city that they talked about with higher density and maximum land use. I think, uh, I think there's going to be some subtle changes in terms of how they develop cities and how open space is looked at and used. And I think technology is going to have a big play on that with apps where people will be able to go online and be able to you know, pick a park and pick a time slot online and then go to that park at that time and, and, and uh, mm. refrain from using that space beyond that time and things like that. So I think we're going to see some interesting things coming uh, coming our way, and we're seeing it already that uh, Niagara, uh, we service the Niagara area as well. We're seeing a lot of um, inquiries about Niagara and and things, uh, you know, people looking for that, you know, single detached even in Hamilton and Burlington and things like that. So you are now, now are, are these people, Conrad, that are changing their thought process, or is this just speeding up the process? Like, for example, if you're, you know, if you're established and you're thinking about downsizing, you're close to retirement, it's like maybe this has pushed you over the edge. So is there a paradigm shift here, or is it just pushing those that were close to this doing it anyway? Well, I think, yeah, when the, the original, when, 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 the, when the lockdown, so to speak, came uh, back early March, mid-March, I think, yes, a lot of that was, um, I, this is it. You know, if I was going to do something in the next two years, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it now. And I think uh, consumers' yeah. uh, mindset shifted and they, they reacted quite quickly. Now that there's more information uh, and we're getting that whole decentralization of businesses, it becomes this question of regaining control. And uh, rural areas, you, you've got control of your space. Uh, you can plant. Uh, you can do what you want uh, in terms of uh, uh, how you live your life, where in these downtown areas, you're, you know, kind of, there's only so many parks, so many open spaces and things like that. So I think the fact that many businesses are saying work at home is probably going to be the norm or maybe coming into Toronto maybe two days a week, and not not commuting that long commute for the, all five. I think that's what's really playing into into people's minds as well as they decide. Well, you know what? That I don't have to do that commute all five days. I can I can now my money goes much further, and I am going to look at some of these uh, suburban areas uh, in and around Hamilton 
um, and Niagara and, and in and around uh, Halton as well. So that's really, uh, really pushed people in terms of that. Uh, working, uh, working from home was my next question. I mean, obviously, we have seen society finally catch up to where technology is to the point where we've seen traffic uh, flows subside drastically, even pollution levels and such. As you mentioned, the need was always for high density, more efficient use of land. Can we still do that? but plan suburban uh, developments better. Uh, it seemed for the longest time we were using the European model. You know, a lot of people in a short, uh, in, in, a, uh, in a very small space. Well, Canada's kind of the opposite of that. So do we need a Canadian solution here uh, that is a balance between this? Yeah, and the word balance, it's going to be a balancing act. We might see some of these, um, uh, like, or let's say these plazas and, and malls and retail um, re, redesigned uh, and take advantage of um, the large space they have and the fact that retail is shrinking. So you might see the redevelopment of some obsolete plazas and malls and things like that that have uh, served um, you know, the outskirts very well. You'll see that kind of transition. But even going back to what you're saying about the downsizer, I think the other one is the, the elephant in the room is health care and long-term care and retirement homes. And um, mm. you said about downsizing, people, people will desi- decide to downsize and some of them will even decide to rent and use their equity in their home to manage their health care needs as they get older instead of going into a retirement home. So I think these, there, there's a number of uh, things at play that are going to affect all segments of the housing continuum. You bring up a valid point too, Conrad, in about, uh, you know, we, we talked about many downsizing and leaving the family home. Do you think because of what we've seen in the senior population, how it's been affected by COVID-19, we're going to see more trying to stay in their home for longer? Yes, I, and I think we're seeing that already. Uh, but like you said, they might look at to downsize and they, they're, I think they're going to think about renting. And like I said, using that that equity that they have to um, as a kind of a, a fund to fund their health care, their long-term health care needs. So that's definitely uh, on people's radar screens. The other thing is we're seeing, so university-aged kids coming back home and not, you know, going away, doing the distance learning piece. And it, where that age group or that demographic, their parents were thinking of even like, you know, maybe we can downsize our kids are away university thinking, no, right. I need more space. And I need uh, I need more creative space that 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 your home now becomes more of a more of a instead of being a connection to the experience, like, you know, you know, you know, being centrally located to shops and all that kind of thing now becomes the actual heart or the center of the experience. Hmm. And you need to have classrooms, home offices, gyms, you know, it's everything, recreational space. So, again, we're seeing that demographic ask you know looking and demanding larger space um uh, larger space on the ground like the detached home so it's a very interesting yin and yang that is happening right now uh and lots of opportunity too i'm guessing conrad oh in, in all segments i think uh, we're going to see a lot of small business that um have thrived during this period a lot of service businesses that have thrived in financial uh being able to afford some of the commercial buildings uh, that they couldn't afford their own space. I think people are going to now be the masters of their own domain. If you have a small business, I think you're going to look towards buying your premises. That instead of being beholden mm. to a landlord from a commercial perspective. So I think there's going to be some great opportunities uh, for everyone. We're seeing people selling their large home, buying a cottage. We're seeing people sell their cottage, buying a large home here. 
a lot of people are thinking about the next two years, maybe there won't be much traveling. So they're creating these uh, backyard oasises and we're seeing higher per mm. square foot for homes that have pools. Wow. Conrad Zarini's been with us, REMAX agent, the ever-changing world post-COVID-19 as we slowly come down the curve, even changing the way uh, we buy and sell our homes. Conrad, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.